If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity. I am Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News, and today I have the treat of chatting with uh, actually Danny Crichton from both TechCrunch and Extra Crunch. Danny, welcome back. Absolutely. It's great to be here. I feel like this is an old time recording, which is you and I. Like This feels like a very 2017 for some reason. I can't quite, uh, can't quite put a finger on it. Exactly. It's, it's a small team and we don't have a guest today. I know. I, actually, it's just the two of us, which is perfect because what we have is a lot of smaller things. And I think, uh, well, I don't know, Danny, like we've been a lot of IPO coverage. So today we decided to look at some smaller stuff, you know, some venture rounds and all that. And I'm honestly kind of excited about them. I'm excited too. So let's let's dive in. So I think the big news uh, this week was uh, Andreessen Horowitz has raised new funds. Yes, as expected. So if you recall back to, gosh, was it Wednesday? Dan Premack over at Axios broke this story and and we were very impressed by it. Uh, and then Andreessen themselves announced it, was it Thursday morning, I think? They yeah. put out their blog post? Yeah. So two funds really quick, a $750 million general fund. And Danny, this is their sixth general this fund. This is their is sixth fund, yeah. Okay. And critically, here's the fun news. A $2 billion late stage vehicle called like late stage fund one or something like that. Most boring name in the world, but it's enormous and it's bigger than I thought, honestly. Or bigger well, than I Absolutely. And, and this is part of, I think, you know, a new strategy that they're trying, which is to actually separate the two funds. So in their fund five, which was 1.5 billion, it was, it was a combined early stage and growth stage vehicle. Um, and so it looks like they've sort of literally on paper now have two vehicles. Presumably there's independent kind of structures in terms of decision making and culture and that sort of thing. Um, uh, uh, Andreessen hired um, David George out of uh, General Atlantic to go and run that growth fund earlier this year. And so it really looks like they're trying to double down on, on growth. So General Atlantic, Gandhi, for those of us who are more venture focused and less PE focused, what's the thumbnail on that firm? It's a, a very well-known and, and long-term uh, growth investor. I, be I believe they're actually out of Connecticut. Um, they're, they're actually based, I believe, I want to say they're actually based out of Greenwich. Uh, hopefully that's right, or I'm going to get emails. But um, they, they've long been investors. Uh, they were uh, investors in uh, Alibaba and a bunch of Chinese stocks, a bunch of the major names that we know about in the Silicon Valley. And so they have a sort of a rich pedigree. And, and David was there since, I want to say, 2012. He was a principal there. So this was actually a promotion for him. I mean, to go from principal General Atlantic to sort of full GP at Andreessen running your own, uh, you know, $2 billion <laughs> growth fund is 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 good, good sign that things are going well. Now, going back to the uh, combined versus separate uh, point, I don't want to stick on uh, Andreessen too long, but to me, it's interesting because Kleiner had late stage and early stage funds, and then they kind of split. So I'm curious if this could yield down the road some more internal divisions about economics and uh, decision making choices around which fund gets what deal. Do you think that could happen or do you think the split will remain pretty healthy for Andreessen? I think it's... It's much more pragmatic to have separate funds. However, I think there's always a lot of optimism between early stage and late stage funds. The idea is you know, the early stage funds are sourcing, they're meeting the founders, and those you know first attempts to talk to people, maybe you miss it in the early stage round, but the idea is that that carries over to the late stage. And if there's sort of shared economics, the hope is everyone cooperates. Um, the reality is, is just early and late stage investing is just different. You know, uh, the the 
uh, metrics are different. The way you approach those investments are different. The team size, we're, we're going to get to team size in a little bit, but, just, broke, but just a second, but you know, the team sizes are different. And so I think realistically, the, 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 the pragmatic approach is to have separate funds, different people working on it, maybe a little bit of cross economics. So you're sort of incentivized to help each other, but, but you really want those teams to be separate. Okay, now let's go ahead and scoot through the rest of the news on Andreessen's front because there's a, the context here is that they also have Andreessen, the larger firm, a crypto vehicle. I think now two bio funds, one that was like 200 and one that was like 450, I think, if my memory serves. So Andreessen has now had a host of funds. I mean, they are now really, I mean, as established as Kleiner was 20 years ago, I feel. So they are, I don't, I'm trying to find the right words for establishment player, but Andreessen finally now seems to meet that mantle in my view, um, overshadowing stuff like uh, Mary Meeker's new fund, which is kind of an upstart now, ironically, given where she came from. Um, but in perspective wise, uh, the $2 billion Andreessen fund is much larger than the $1.25 billion bond fund that Meeker uh, raised earlier this year. So any last thoughts, Danny, or are we scooting on to SoftBank? Well, I think we I think we need to talk about SoftBank because you think two billion dollars is a big fund. <laughs> but it's, it, it turns out it turns out it turns not. out it turns out it is not a big fund. So so we always talk about growth and, and startups growing, but uh, we rarely get to talk about doubling uh, at the venture scale. And so this week, uh, I think there's just been this incredible news that uh, you know Connie at, at TechCrunch sort of followed up on, and I think it was sourced by a couple other publications. But uh, the Vision Fund is going to double its employee count from 400 to 800 investment. Professionals, which which just blows my mind, having worked at venture firms that had ten and twelve people. Right. Uh, I don't even know. I mean, you, you almost have to imagine that they're going to rent out Oracle Park and just do <laughs> partner meetings on Monday, like on on the on the field. And maybe Mazasan is sort of like an umpire, and and whoever hits the ball out of the park, that's like the four hundred million dollar check that goes. I was not going to stop that analogy until it ended. That was the that was the bet worst best. One of the two things I've ever heard in my life. I can't decide if that was brilliant or terrible. But, Danny, what would 800 people do at one firm? Like, I mean, that's a lot of diligence. How many people does it take to write one check? Do they, like, pass off each letter of the check to a new person? Like, what what does that mean? I think I think it just shows the scale of ambition. And I think it also shows that they're trying to paralyze a lot of these investment rounds. So if you're trying to do 15 or 20 checks all at the same time, right. uh, suddenly your 800-person team becomes, you know, 40 each. Um, mm-hmm. Which is still a lot, but but uh, you know when you're writing a half billion dollar check, you probably should check some you know some boxes and make sure you're crossing your T's. So yeah. um, I, I think you know it just uh, we we've heard many rumors that Mazasan wants to raise three hundred billion bucks, and so uh, this is sort of I, I guess prelude to a much much more ambitious fund coming soon. Yeah, that's the question. Does the Vision Fund too, if it is put together and when it might be finished, will it be a hundred billion in size like the Vision Fund one, or will it in fact be larger as they might wish, or smaller if they're stuck with it? I'm curious, but we've seen some stuff that is um, dicey. Uh, Wag, a Vision Fund uh, recipient, was in the Wall Street Journal, and they were looking at some second measure data, kind of looking at the the um, spend rates around the products. And Wag hasn't grown super fast since it raised a bunch of money from SoftBank's vision fund. So the question then becomes, is some of the money being invested inefficiently? And if so, how much? Is that dragging down returns? And uh, if so, that could impact the size of the next vision fund. Should it be put together? And of course, there's a Saudi Arabia problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But with 800 people, what can you not do? That's a lot of folks. So, Well, I, I think I think the solution here is, if you remember, there's this huge debate of how much money uh, vision fund should put into WeWork. And I, I think the answer is, is if you just hire enough people on your own team, and you throw them all in a WeWork, 
you sort it of get the economics on both sides. Itself. You just exactly. fund the company itself. So <laughs> it's it's the new approach to, to venture investing in the Valley today. Um, it's definitely the latter. But if you tried the former, it wouldn't actually work. If you were thinking, if you're listening and thinking it was brilliant, that wouldn't actually function. But uh, going from the ephemeral to the real, Cheddar, everyone's favorite, I don't know, Danny, CNBC equivalent for the millennial era, uh, sold for $200 million this week. And I was surprised at the dollar amount and happy for the whole team. It's rare to see a media company exit at an up valuation that seems to be not a fire sale. So I want to kind of like applaud gently for the Cheddar team. And uh, their last valuation was $160 million post. So not exactly the biggest exit up from their last funding round. But hey, you know what? It wasn't a Mike.com. It wasn't a mashable fire sale. It was a solid nine-figure exit for people that I like. Danny, well, please and, and I think wrong. it's I think you're absolutely right. I mean, look, we, we rarely see positive media outcomes. I mean, uh, it was rumored today in The Wall Street Journal that Tumblr is on the sale chop, uh, yes. chopping block, which is uh, co-owned by our, our TechCrunch parent company, Verizon Media. But um, that's not going to be a happy exit. And, and most media companies are not happy exits. And so not only is it a $200 million exit, but they, they'd only raised, at least publicly from what we understand, $54 million. And so yes. you're looking at sort of four... X exit on uh, invested capital. I mean, that that's a great exit. I mean, that's that's what you want. Um, you know, you want every dollar going in, having four dollars coming out. So um, that 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 was a good sign. And and look, the revenues were quite strong. So according to Variety, the company had twenty seven million in revenue in twenty eighteen, eleven million in twenty seventeen. And so I think the story here is, you know, they really figured out revenues early. Um, they were sort of disciplined with cash. Um, they hit kind of a segment that a lot of people want. And and there's a buyer, uh, which happens to be a cable, a fairly large kind of uh, nationwide cable provider uh, who was willing to buy. Yep. And in terms of, is it, is it pronounced Altice? Is that how you pronounce that? I think that's acceptable. Are there Altice or Altice? I don't I know. I assume it's like Outlattice and then they sort of got oh. the letters confused. So, oh, Well, it's one of those terrible names that could be a private equity firm or a cable company. It probably costs Anyways. $2 million because it's media. It probably costs $2 million to, to come up with that name. Yes. Um, gosh, I've, I have jokes, but we're off topic. We're going to move on. Uh, I looked them up before the show. They are a cable TV company. They're in about 5 million homes and they're worth about $16 billion. So this was a... It was it was a moderately large deal for that company. It wasn't half the value of the firm, but it also wasn't five dollars. So it was moderate to small on the on the size. But again, happy, fun, good. It is fun, and and you know one of the fun side notes of Cheddar, which I learned today because we were prepping for this show, is is Cheddar at some point bought RateMyProfessors.com as part of their Cheddar U uh, kind of university focused uh, news network. So apparently, they also bought RateMyProfessors.com. Well, good for everyone who rated their professors. You helped out with uh, the only good media exit in the last 28 years. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, moving back towards our traditional fair this week, there was a round uh, from Utah, a company called Divi. Uh, and there's actually several companies in tech called Divi. This is, I believe, getdivi.com. Don't get it twisted with the other one. Uh, they raised $200 million, led by Scott Sandell at NEA. Uh, critically, they had raised a quarter billion dollar credit facility earlier this year and it picked up about 50 million in venture capital in 2018. But let me tell you a story, Danny. December 17, seed round. Series A and Series B in 2018. You kick out 2019, quarter billion dollar credit facility. You move into Q2, $200 million round. That smells like growth to me. What do you think? 
I, th- I think it's incredible. I mean, when you think about this is a company that was founded in February of 2016 was the original idea for the company. So just just a little bit more than three years ago. <laughs> right. And so I, I think what's crazy, I mean, I think there's a couple there's so many great angles here. One is, you know, if you look at Brex and a lot of these other companies that are sort of targeting credit card spend or just spend in general. There is such an opportunity here. I mean, we've seen Brex sort of became this billion-dollar unicorn overnight. Uh, Divi is going down the same route. I, I don't want to say they overlap entirely. They sort of have different customer bases, from my understanding, but but they're sort of solving the same problem, which is companies spend a lot of money and have no insight in where it goes. Uh, we fill out expense reports. We fill out receipts. Uh, we get charged for LinkedIn accounts for employees that left us five years ago. There's just complete chaos. And so when you're kind of going after a place which has a, you know, a trillion in spend plus... Uh, it's amazing how much money you can make really fast. Yes. Now, a couple more notes about Divi. So I got on the phone with them. Oh, gosh, it may have been last week. I talked to, I think it was Alex Bean, the uh, one of the co-founders, and their model's a lot of fun. So they don't charge for the service, but they do distribute um, credit cards and uh, virtual credit cards to employees that you can set limits for. Again, your point about giving people insight into their spend. And because of the way interchange works, they pick up a couple of basis points on transactions, voila revenue so they can offer a free service to companies that helps the firms and they drive revenue through usage not by taxing usage by making people pay per seat or per employee so it's a pretty cool model that you would go well that either will work or it won't but according to the firm they have quote crazy product market fit and i think that's the growth story that's driving this really kind of rapid fire venture cycle um and now they have so much access to credit and so much capital in the bank. It's kind of their race to lose, I feel. Um, but one more thing on the Brex point. So Brex is reinventing the corporate credit card. And we've covered them extensively on the show because they did this ad push all across um, I've never seen so many ads on Caltrain in San Francisco in my life. Actually, MuleSoft, after their IPO... Oh, no, did they, they get bought? Anyways, MuleSoft once papered all of Caltrain on 4th Street in their big blue and the M. And I felt like I was walking into the podcast whenever I took a train. <laughs> exactly. Um, which is terrible, by the way. Don't do that. Uh, but the point is, Brex is kind of targeting a bit more at the Amex market, whereas I feel Divi is shooting a bit more for in-between corporate cards and Concur. So slightly different targets. I agree there is some overlap. They disagree, shockingly. Um, but $200 million is a Big-ass round, and it's a Utah-based company, so one more win for the Silicon Slopes. I, I always joke about Utah, but seriously, the, the number of great companies, particularly on the enterprise side, it, it, you know, Podium and a bunch of others, yep. I, I think we talked about Podium a couple episodes back, but but Utah is really becoming a base of operations for a lot of these great enterprise companies. And I think the lesson, I mean, to, to double down on this, the business model here is, is, I think, the future of a lot of enterprise software, which is you don't charge for the software. The software is free. I mean, we saw this, I think, first with Zenefits, where you sort of got this HR software, but then you got the the revenues came from being the broker of record for health insurance. And so yes. there's sort of this indirect way to get paid. And I think we're going to see more and more of these. I mean, it, no, someone should be doing this in procurement. Someone should be doing this in a bunch of other spaces that enterprise touch in terms of spend. Um, there are a lot of companies that are going to get built. And, and there's nothing like selling something that's free. There's nothing True. like selling free. So actually building on that, I know we're supposed to be quick here, but eh, why not? Um, Chime, a neobank, Acorns, a savings app that now has a banking component to it, and Divi all are currently finding great ways to scale businesses by offering cheaper free services because they make money off interchange. That that percent they get of transactions. That bit of Dodd-Frank that changed the way the laws are set up in our country to help this be more effective and more powerful for smaller businesses has been huge. 
my only fear is what if the laws change and that gets taken away? That would be a kind of a platform risk via the federal government for many of these firms. But investors are not concerned and they're pouring money into growth where they see it and they see it here. So hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Anyways, we should move on to a business that we've never talked about on the show before. We work. Well, we, we work <laughs> okay, that was a, that was a joke. Okay, <laughs> I was going to say I was going uh, for the well, straight run sarcasm. To, to be clear, it's not we work; it is the we company. Okay, which you have the, to put in quotes because no one knows what that is. I, <laughs> I, I just is it the we company or is it we company? The we company sounds less rude somehow. We company just sounds either like a child. <laughs> sounds thing. like someone uh, like a roller coaster manufacturing company. But <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 so give us give us the top line level numbers because I never get tired of hearing them. No, no, no. First, we have to tell them the news, Danny. What is the news? Then I will do the numbers. Okay. Well. Okay. So the news was so they originally had filed pri- privately with the SEC um, to, to do their S one in December, and and I, I, they they didn't pull it. Right. Or they sort of delayed it. But, uh, you know, these filings are just disappear from the SEC. But they refiled um, earlier or, or according to I believe the Wall Street Journal originally broke it or maybe someone else did on Monday that they had yep. refiled their S1. Um, and that means that they're sort of ready to go public and probably updated it with their Q1 figures. Exactly. So so my read of this was they started the process with the SEC in December, got their first filing in, kept working on it, got through Q1, updated the S1 to an S1 slash A. And uh, I want to see it now. So I'm really hoping that they will drop it onto the world. Um, but I promised the top line numbers. And so here they are per our notes doc, which is that in 2018, WeWork had $1.8 billion in revenue, a staggering growth from 2017. However, it yielded $1.9 billion in net losses. So it's very enjoyable. They, they had $1.8 billion in revenue and $3.7 billion in gap expenses. And <laughs> they ended up with it a just- less. Than, no, a worse than negative 100% net margin on the year. So that's like not selling a dollar for 50 cents, but selling a dollar for like 48 cents. And, and this is, maybe they need Divi. Maybe they need better expense management. Uh, yeah, yeah. And maybe just, I don't know, different philosophies towards growth. I mean, WeWork is a company that did find a, a crack in the market where they could change things and drive a lot of demand and a lot of revenue and really remake the face of co-working in America and around the world. They also discovered a way to do that while consuming all the money in the world. And that's where the story is slightly less compelling. However, if Uber can go public, why not WeWork, right? I mean... It doesn't really, make sense to me. I, I I think Uber makes way more sense to me. I, I, it's interesting that WeWork makes no sense. Uh, you don't have the network effects. It's very easy to build out real estate. I think more and more landlords are figuring out how to do co-working. They may not be very effective at it. Maybe, maybe they're just not never going to have the brand that that the We company has sort of put together. But um, it, it sort of blows my mind to think that, you know, at the end of the day, they're selling real estate. Um now that said, a bunch of smart investors have wanted to put an enormous amount of money in, you know, none less than SoftBank, um, which almost kind of destroyed the fund over trying to invest in WeWork. And so when you see these VCs really doubling down, and we don't have the access to all the numbers, you know, this is always my thing. Is like I, I just sort of withhold judgment uh, because who knows what sort of the lease structures are for those early office buildings in Manhattan. Um, you know, if they're sort of making five dollars for every dollar they're spending on those early leases, then yes, maybe amazing. it's all growth, it's all marketing, and it, you know, there's a huge opportunity here in five, six years. We're all going to be laughing when they're making ten billion in revenue, and it's the largest unicorn on the planet. But um, it's it's just I've never had a company so polarizing though. I mean, if you think about that, this company's been around a long time. 
Uh, it's it's the largest landlord in Manhattan. It, it employs tens of thousands of people. I mean, all the office managers, all the people, all the cleaners, everyone for these buildings. Uh, and and when you get down right on down to it, we're at the IPO. We're like weeks away, presumably, from having all the numbers. And no one, and I've never heard of an opinion. It's like this is the worst company in the world or the best company in the world, and everything in between. I just never see this. I mean, Uber. I feel like people had very strong opinions, but they're all sort of lined up. I mean, no one thought that Uber was worth zero. <laughs> but I feel like there are, you know, I feel like there's a lot of yeah. I tried to write that story back in like 2014. I brought it up in the show before. I wrote a post about the bear case for Uber and Ryan Lawler made fun of me, a former TC staffer whom I love. And I should have kept that dang draft because I was right. Anyways, WeWork is a polarizing company because it is still a bet, Danny. It is still an uncertain. It's still a bet. And, and who, I mean, which isn't, we complain how long it takes for companies to come out publicly, right? It takes longer and longer. There are more rounds. There's mezzanine capital. Um, yes. Public market investors don't have an opportunity here. Uh, it's interesting because I think if you're a public market investor and you're a retail investor at home, you actually can make a real bet here. You can look at the numbers. You could do some work. Maybe you investigate which cities it's launching in or its office structures, or maybe you can get some stuff from real estate sources or whatever. Uh, and you could really make a bet. And some people are going to make a lot of money and a lot of people are going to lose money. I just don't know which one is which. Maybe it'll be random. Yeah. Maybe it's gambling. So so to, to give people jokes aside, a bit of a, a thought into how we're considering this company, when the S1 drops, what I'll be very fascinated by is the sequential quarterly revenue growth, especially in the second half of 2018. If you recall, Uber's numbers on a year-over-year -year basis comparing 18 to 17 looked pretty good. But when you drilled into the second half of 2018, there was a dramatic revenue deceleration into the second half of the year, despite still kind of billion-dollar-plus losses. And that is why Uber's probably struggling to get the valuation that it wanted. And so if WeWork has a similar deceleration in revenue growth, the growth story falters, the losses remain extant, and that's when you get sticky. So that's what we'd be looking for. Um, I'd love to have that S1 as early as tomorrow. It'll probably not be tomorrow, but you don't tell the whole world you've refiled your S1 as an S1A if you're not getting ready to go. So that's the shtick. Oh, and Danny, do you think it'll be a direct listing? No. No. They, no. <laughs> they, oh, they, they, they need to raise a little bit of capital. Interestingly, uh, they did some analysis that said that the, the IPO capital will probably go out the front door in like four to six months. I mean, it'll just burn um, it. I mean, it's just burning oh down. Whatever they raise, well, it'll go out in like weeks. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to work for a company someday that has that approach to spend because I would like to fly business class. Right. You know, <laughs> exactly. But then you have to work in a way work. So, okay. Uh, I didn't hear me say that. Um, we're going to move on to Slack now so we don't get in any more trouble with the WeWork PR people who are going to call me again. Um, all right. So Danny, you did some very important work on the Slack direct listing S1 and you found over a hundred million missing dollars. And I read your piece over on extra crunch with a lot of, uh, excitement. So tell us, uh, the top line here. What's yeah, going so, on? so what I wanted to focus on is, so now that we have the Slack S1, we know how every round progressed in the company's history. So the company has raised, uh, 15 rounds, um, through, you know, series A through H, including some multi tranche rounds. Uh, and I wanted to compare how the tech press kind of performed in covering those rounds compared to sort of the reality of the company's fundraise. And for the most part, everything was fine. Like TechCrunch, Bloomberg, Recode, a bunch of others. We all sort of got the numbers uh, sort of ballpark right. Some were off by a little bit, but you can imagine that these rounds may have fluctuated uh, a little bit late or, you know, they sort of closed with some extra investors. But the, the one that was strange was the Series G, um, which was widely reported at 250 million bucks. This was the, the round led by SoftBank. And, yeah. and the final number was actually more like 463. 
Um, and the, the discrepancy was that um, it looked like Excel actually put an enormous amount of money into the first close of the Series G. And so when that round was sort of percolated by Slack, it was 250 million, of which I want to say uh, 90 or so million of that was actually from Excel. And and the Vision Fund actually a month or two later closed on another $150 million investment into the company at that time. And so the, the total round was significantly wider than was ever reported up until today. Um, and so when I sort of went through the S1, I was surprised to find um, that we, we just had totally missed this. Um, there's just no coverage anywhere I could find that there was a sort of 163 million had you know sort of gone plowed into into uh, Slack without any of us knowing. And that's because they just didn't tell anybody, and maybe we didn't see a form D that we could then decipher from to kind of get closer to the truth. Don't forget, people listening, a lot of the news that we get about funding is self-reported. Like you often don't have regulatory filings to fact check. So if our producer, Christopher Gates says, I just raised a hundred million from, I don't know, Sequoia, um, I have to go crap. He did. It's, it's, you often don't have the ability to call BS unless of course it smells wrong. You can do more investigative work, but most of the time company X raises 11 million from investors, you know, Z is where it comes from. Um, so that's why this money went missing. But uh, Danny, what do you think about the, the amount that was invested? Are you surprised they needed the capital or um, not surprised? I don't think they well they, they don't need the capital right so they're, well I mean they're they're losing money but 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 uh, they don't need the capital in the same way that WeWork needs the capital I, I think the exactly. the question here was you know, the capital is available uh, SoftBank wanted to put an enormous amount in it looks like Excel Growth really wanted to write a huge check in mm-hmm. and uh, they took the money and yeah. the, you know the valuation was right uh, the valuation for that round on a per share basis was was nine bucks which was up from uh, seven eighty in the last round so it was it was a sort of 60, well, 50, 60% increase um, from the previous round. And so, you know, Slack took the easy money uh, that delayed the IPO. Yeah. 15% more, not 50. Uh, From 780 to 9, 1.2 out of 30. Yeah, 20, 30%. This is why uh, we usually do the math before the show starts. Right, and exactly. we write it down in the, in the notes at, doc. You know, I was a math major. So this is a, well, but, but my, my math major is all Greek. So, so. Bro, you can't get maths by a philosophy major on the show. That's just, that's not good. I feel like um, philo- yeah, philosophers are more grounded in reality. That is, that is, the, that is but the wrongest thing ever said on this show. And given that it's this show, that's actually quite the statement. Um, I, I was the first to yawn on the show too. So I'll, I'll take my credits. <laughs> This has been Equity Rewind with Danny Crichton and Alex Wilhelm. Um, what matters here is that Slack, a solid company, took on more capital than we thought, giving SoftBank a larger stake in it heading into the direct listing, making the bet behind the company and therefore the liquidity event a bit larger and therefore more important. And this also goes to show us that we don't always have the best view into companies, even when we think we have what you could call, um, I don't know, full clarity. That's right. And for Slack, I mean, I've complained bitterly for a while that uh, more and more companies are not filing their Form Ds, which are required anytime you sort of do. uh, They're not literally required, but they're a safe harbor. So so they're the best practice uh, filing with the SEC every time you raise a venture round. But but Slack has never filed. This is the action. The S1 was the first filing that Slack has ever had with the SEC. So they've raised 15 rounds and and, and never filed a Form D on any of them, from what I could tell. That's because Stuart is just too cool for the SEC. He's he's too uh, cool for school. That's what I was. That's the joke that I was shooting. Yep. For. Yes. Yeah, thanks, Alex. <laughs> okay. Well, on that that's note, where Danny, we are. <laughs> and this is where we uh, we we tie it off. So, Danny, thank you as always for lending us your voice and your time. We will be back in seven days, and everyone, stay cool. Thanks, Alex.
All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.